Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We are going to have an outstanding show coming up your way in just a minute. Dr. Cal Beisner is already on our studio line, so I'm going to talk to him. We're going to find out a lot of what went on at the UN Climate Summit and some other concerns regarding some of the mild to, uh, should I say, severe hysteria that goes on in our world over climate change. So we know climate is changing, but what about the hysteria that's attached to it? We're going to find out a little bit about that. And then Pastor Brent Kuhlman is going to be joining me in the second half hour of this show. And in hour two, a full hour with Dr. Marcus Bachman. We're going to talk about how to have a really, really good relationship. And we're going to open up the phone lines and also give you a chance to ask your questions, of which Marcus will answer. So let's get started. I'll take a very short 60-second break and bring on Dr. Cal Beisner. New listeners are discovering Faith Radio every day. Hi, Neil Staven with another note from a new friend and supporter of this ministry. This gentleman writes, I found your station a couple weeks ago. I just love it. God changed my heart four years ago. The Holy Spirit gave me new desires, and I don't listen to the same rock stations I used to. I was listening to sermons online, and then I turned on the radio and found the same pastors I was listening to were on your station. I exclusively listen to you now. I donated last Wednesday to Team 360. I need to hear the truth that your station provides. Thank you for being a blessing to so many. You know, God's at work across our communities, and new friends like this are finding Faith Radio every day. Thank you for supporting this ministry so the gospel is available for those seeking hope and the truth of God's Word. Now, your gifts are always welcome, whether you're a new or a longtime listener. Call 877-93-FAITH or give online at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to the show today. Dr. Cal Beisner is the founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. It's really this fantastic network of about 60-plus Christian theologians and scientists and economists and and other scholars educating for biblical earth stewardship and economic development for uh, the poor, and on and on. So, uh, Cal, welcome. Hey, great to be back with you, Bill. Yeah, do I understand you're at an airport right now? Yeah, I sure am. I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, on my way back home for the first time in a little over a week after speaking in D.C. and then here. So you're telling me you got through security? Yeah, they didn't catch me. <laughs> I am so relieved. Well, I'm not going to say well, anything. I'm, I'm going to keep quiet. I'm one of those dangerous. I'm one of those dangerous <laughs> climate deniers. Of know, course. Oh yeah. Deniers. Uh, Holocaust we're, deniers. We're uh, keeping an eye on you, my friend. Deniers. Yes. So, what happened at the UN Climate Summit? Well, uh, basically, a bunch of panic, a bunch of craziness. You know, if the scientific evidence for dangerous man-made global warming were really persuasive, they wouldn't have to exploit a 16-year-old mentally disturbed girl to get out there on stage and 
say really just unhinged things in terms of her hatred of the UN, of government leaders all over the world, and frankly, of life itself. Uh, you know, if the evidence were good, it would be sufficient. But uh, unfortunately, they've taken advantage of, of this uh, young girl, uh, Greta Thunberg, and uh, it's just a, a, a sad commentary on civic discourse in our day. Uh, are you assuming sh- she was heavily coached? Oh, my goodness, not just assuming. There have been a number of uh, major investigative journalist articles about how she got into all of this. It certainly wasn't her idea from the start. Her her two rather famous Swedish parents, one a journalist, one a uh, an actress, uh, and teamed up with a number of major marketing persons associated with the renewable energy industry and created the whole campaign. And, of course, they make it look as if it's just this nice, innocent little 16-year-old girl uh, starts out 15 years old when she starts doing these uh, school school strikes for climate. Uh, but, in fact, the whole thing is orchestrated to the tune of uh, certainly many, many millions of dollars of marketing uh, spending. Uh, and it's it's created a phenomenon around the world, and it's quite sad because it's taking a lot of kids out of out of school classes where they might actually be learning something. Instead, they're wasting their time screaming and yelling about a non-problem. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, my nephew who went to college uh, at a school here in Minnesota, a very um, good academic school, and he they had a um, a, a protest, a climate day protest and his teacher excused the whole class to go which kind of sounds a little bit like group think doesn't it yeah it does and you know that's one of the one of the interesting tactics here is that of course you can claim massive crowds when you tell kids that they're free to go from class doesn't matter whether they're really <laughs> buying into the message or not. I mean, how many kids would say, oh, no, I'd rather sit here at this uncomfortable school desk and listen to my professor uh, and take notes than I'd like to go out there and run around and shout and, and be part of a big crowd out in the, out in the open air? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I've got a, a very short clip of some interaction that took place at that event. I just want to give you a, an idea. One thing I'm kind of wondering about is the statistic I've been hearing that in 12 years the Earth will be uninhabitable. Do you guys uh, buy into that? Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> and it's very serious. What do you plan to do to fix it? Uh, I mean, coming to strikes like these and uh, really fighting for it. So there you go, Cal. You, you go you to go. strikes <laughs> like that, and that will help solve climate change. Yeah, you know, in, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote... Uh, that if you are just living under the sun, that is, in this, in this secular world without God as, as part of your picture, uh, really there's nothing better than to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And I think what, you're, what we're really seeing here in this incredible mania that's going around the world is uh, people who have abandoned God and have lost the sense of meaning, the sense of purpose, the sense of, of dignity in life. And for them, really, eat, drink, and be merry, and be merry for tomorrow we die when there's no hope for, 
for fixing what's going on in the world. Uh, that's kind of what we're left doing. And the sad thing is that there's really, you know, there are real things to fix, but dangerous man-made global warming is not one of them. These, these kids could be doing some wonderful things, and instead they're wasting their time. It reminds me, Bill, of uh, a really classic, marvelous book, first published back in 1841 by the Scottish uh, writer Charles Mackay, titled Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's a magnificent book. It really is. And uh, if people read it today, they will think, oh, my goodness, he's talking about oh, any number of different, especially environmental manias that have come and gone and come and gone and come and gone over the last century. But I'm looking at some of the reports. Uh, we're all in big trouble. Climate panel sees a dire future. And then it listed all the things the report found. Uh, seas are now rising. Uh, world's oceans have lost 1% to 3% of the oxygen. It goes on and on. And, Cal, if you look and read that over and believe it all, you'd have to say, well, this is all true. Yeah, um, a, a crucial term there. You, said, uh, you, you quoted the headline as the panel sees. Yes. No, the panel does not see. The panel imagines. <laughs> All of these things are based on computer models. And what we know by comparing those computer models with real-world observations is that they predict at least two, probably three, possibly as much as four times as much warming as actually is observed over the relevant period of time. There are 102 what are called CMIP-5 uh, computer models for climate. And out of those 102, 98% all show more warming than actually observed. And the average among them shows twice as much warming as actually observed over the relevant period. Hmm. Uh, there's only one model <laughs> out of the 102. There's only one model that is at or below the observed warming. So the models are simply wrong, and as such, they provide no rational basis for any predictions about future temperature, and therefore also no rational basis for any policy dealing with future, uh, future temperature. So when the, when the headline says that the panel sees, you have to understand sees means imagines. Yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, if, if, you, if all the models are saying that there's, you know, three to four times warmer than we've actually had, then you have to say, well, flawed models, and how do we make any kind of policy going forward? Or how do yeah. we, how do we uh, bring down the hysteria a little bit? Yeah, and the, the really sad thing to me, Bill, uh, having, having spent a lot of time in the third world in developing countries where poverty is just endemic, poverty unlike anything that most Americans have ever seen unless they've gone there, uh, the terrible thing is that the prescriptions for curing dangerous man-made global warming all call for, one, turning over a whole lot more control of the economy to government. Mm -hmm. And if the 20th century taught us anything, it's that government-controlled economies are utter failures at anything except putting power in the hands of tyrants who kill their people. Mm. Um, but second, these prescriptions also call for 
getting rid of the most abundant, reliable, affordable energy sources that we have. But abundant, affordable, reliable energy is absolutely indispensable to lifting and keeping whole societies out of poverty. So what that means is that these United Nations folks are saying, put us in control and take away your energy, and we're going to keep billions of people around the world poor and therefore also frequently sick and dying sooner than they otherwise need to. That's why I'm involved in this. That's why the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation exists. Cornwallalliance.org. And uh, we we hope that your listeners will come to our website, uh, subscribe to our newsletter, and and get some of the books and DVDs that we offer through our online shop. Yeah, Cal, it's all great stuff, cornwallalliance.org. Let me take a little break, and then we come back. Lots more with Dr. Cal Beisner. Delighted to be talking to Dr. Cal Beisner. He is the founder and spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, cornwallalliance.org. You can go check it out. Uh, so, Cal, when I'm seeing some of these reports uh, on the the outcome of the U.N. climate um, conference, and they're talking about things like coral reefs and all that stuff, and it's all going away, um, what's the average person supposed to think about those kinds of statements? Well, the average person should think, I ought to test what's being claimed by what's actually observed. I mean, that's, that's what science is all about. You know, mm-hmm. we, make, we make hypotheses about what we expect based on how we understand the world works and what's going on. And then we have to test those hypotheses by actual real-world observations. Now, <clears throat> uh, you mentioned uh, coral reefs and the, the uh, claim that coral reefs are dying all over the place. Well, coral reefs go through a life cycle uh, that, that goes over and over again. Uh, they grow, they die off, they grow, they die off. Uh, the actual real-world observation is that uh, coral reefs are not experiencing a net uh, reduction in extent or size or health. They're going through these cycles that they normally do. Uh, and so what we need to do is to, to try to find the actual sources of the empirical observation rather than just what people say, oh, well, this is what we understand is going to happen when you add CO2 to the atmosphere and to the ocean. Uh, the reality is that coral reefs respond very well to a changing chemical environment. Uh, they adapt, uh, and they've been doing that for all of Earth's history. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned earlier sea level rise. Well, uh, according to the models, the climate models, temperature should be rising at a particular rate, and therefore sea level, and sea level should be rising at some particular rate as well. But as we said a little while ago, the models predict two to four times as much warming as is actually observed, and so therefore the predictions of sea level rise should be you know, proportionally too high as well. And what we actually see from the empirical observations is that the rate of sea level rise has not changed over the period of so-called man-made global warming. It's 
going right along at a clip of well, about seven to eight inches, uh, even actually six to seven inches per century, mm-hmm. uh, which is what it's been doing for thousands of years. Uh, there's no reason to uh, to get panicked about that. I, as you know, I used to live in South Florida, and I lived 15 miles from the beach, but I was only eight feet above sea level. I ran the numbers based on the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's predictions of sea level rise rate. Bill, I'd have had beachfront property in just about 3,600 years. <laughs> okay, that sounds fair. I'd like to check the work it? on your math, but no, I'm buying it for sure. <laughs> yeah. So oh, you're uh, gonna you're gonna buy my house at, n- at beachfront property price? No, I'm not. No, I'm <laughs> I'm paying inland property price. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so what about? Any proposed solutions? And has anyone done a cost-benefit analysis? Um, uh, And what is going on with, you know, solutions that would basically bankrupt the the economy and the world? Yeah. Well, the the best uh, cost-benefit analysis done of the Paris Global Climate Treaty uh, that was signed in 2015 and 16. Uh, was by Dr. Bjorn Lomborg. He's a, a, a Danish environmental economist and statistician. And he said, let's assume that the IPCC is right about how fast the world will warm because of added CO2. And let's assume that it's also right about the cost of implementing everything in this treaty. What will be the results of the implementation? The answer was a reduction in global average temperature in the year 2100 of three-tenths of one degree Fahrenheit. And the cost would be one to two trillion dollars per year from 2030 to the end of the century. That's 70 to 140 trillion dollars. What that works out to is uh, 23.3 to 46.6 trillion dollars per tenth of a degree Fahrenheit reduction in global average temperature, which, by the way, would have absolutely zero impact on any ecosystem, and nobody would be able to feel it. Uh, We would only be able to statistically infer it. Uh, We can't even sense it directly. Mm -hmm. Uh, the The other big proposal, of course, is the Green New Deal from Alexandria Occasional Corte, I mean, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, the, uh, the Green New Deal has been analyzed carefully by the American Enterprise Institute, and they figured out that just to do the, the uh, uh, change in energy infrastructure here in the United States that the GND demands would cost about $490 billion per year. But there would be no way to get the Green New Deal passed as legislation, if it were turned into legislation, without a huge coalition of people pursuing other interests like universal health care, universal Medicare, and free college education and things of this sort. Once you add in all those coalitions necessary to pass the deal, the price turns from $490 billion a year to $9 trillion per year. Uh, And the whole U.S. economy is only about $21 trillion per year. 
So, you know, think of it this way. Whatever your income is, figure that roughly half of it would be going to pay for the Green New Deal. Does that make you happy? And the impact on global temperature from implementing the Green New Deal would be so small that we wouldn't even be able to detect it. Mm, Wow. So, Cal, how much of climate panic, if I'm going to call it that, is motivated by caring people that really have a true concern for the planet versus other things like power and money? Well, it depends on which people you're talking about. I think an awful lot of people at the grassroots level really are motivated by compassion, by caring about the, about the earth, caring about animals, caring about forests, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the folks at the top, the power brokers and all of this, uh, it really is a matter of power. As we started off talking today uh, about Greta Thunberg, the Swedish 16-year-old girl who's been leading these school strikes for climate and mm-hmm. spoke to Congress last week, spoke to the UN uh, on Monday, uh, you know, her entire campaign was put together by people associated with the renewable energy industry, wind and solar particularly, mm-hmm. uh, and has been pushed all over the world by people who stand to gain money for their industry and power for their politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just patent on all of this. Yeah. So any counsel you can have for some of the younger people who are really committed to this um, climate change solutions and they don't want to listen to any other advice? Well, of course, if they don't want to listen to any other advice, they obviously won't listen to mine. There you go. (laughs) Kind of a waste of breath. Well, I get that. If instead they are the sort of people who say, you know, I don't want to be taken in easily, then what I say is carefully read real scientists putting forth careful arguments on both sides. So, for example, I would suggest that they read uh, Sir John Houghton's Global Warming, The Complete Briefing. Houghton is a former chairman of the UN Intergovernmental on, the planet, uh, on, on Climate Change. Mm-hmm. Sir John and Houghton. His book is one of, the best, uh, one of the best defenses of climate alarmist thinking I've read. Yeah. Give me that, uh, that book title again, Cal. Global Warming, The Complete Briefing. Okay. And then they should read uh, Dr. Roy Spencer's simple little book called Global Warming Skepticism for Busy People, okay. uh, which the Cornwall Alliance publishes. And if they go to cornwallalliance.org, uh, click on the donate button, make a donation of any size, literally any size, Bill, yeah. uh, and ask for Global Warming Skepticism for Busy People, we'll send them a copy yeah. uh, as, our, as our way of saying thank you, and I'm, their gift will be 100% tax deductible. Sweet, Cal. I'm going to do that right now and get you upgraded to first class. <laughs> hey, thank you. On I your flight home. That. Thanks for coming on the show, Cal. Always nice talking to you. Hey, great, Bill. Thanks very yep. much. Good Dr. Luck. Cal Beisner has been my guest. Go to cornwallalliance.org to learn more about Uh, Cal, and you can get that book for a donation of any size. We'll take a short break and be back in a minute. All I want to do is praise your name from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. You are my God, and all I want to do is praise your name. 
Welcome back to the show. I'm awfully delighted to be welcoming to the program Pastor Brent Coleman. He is the uh, sole pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. And it's uh, one of the most picturesque little churches you'll ever see. And uh, I'm curious to find out about what it's like to pastor a a church in rural Nebraska and also find out uh, his love for Jesus and what it means to be a mature Christian, among other things. Brent, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. Now, first of all, um, how did you get called into the church you're at right now? Well, I've always wanted to be a pastor, and then, of course, I studied at the seminary, and then I got a first call to serve uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Hebron, Nebraska, and then Mm -hmm. after six years there, Trinity Murdoch called me, and I accepted, and I've been here for 22 years. That's fantastic, and it is a beautiful church, Um, and I was looking at uh, the website, and was just kind of wondering, what are some obstacles and some of the challenges you have as a pastor uh, pastoring a smaller church in uh, rural Nebraska? Well, I think they're the same, uh, same issues that everybody has in the ministry. It's called uh, the old Adam, our old sinful nature. <laughs> exactly. The devil yes. and the world. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, there's only one thing you can do with the old Adam, our old sinful nature, and, and that's it has to be put to death. And it has to be uh, killed by God's word every day. Amen. So that the new, so that the new man spelled F A I T H, faith in Jesus, can live before God in Christ's righteousness and in yes. Christ's holiness. You know, so those are, that's the constant battle of doing pastoral ministry. You're, and but but the point of all of that is is to proclaim Jesus Christ, who has died on the cross to forgive all your sin who has defeated Satan in his death and resurrection, and who has overcome the world, so that you as a Christian uh, can do uh, God's work, the good use, I like to say. He has good use for you in this world, uh, in your many vocations as husband, wife, father, mother, worker, citizen, church member, etc. Mm-hmm. And Brent, the way we become uh, fully devoted followers of Jesus and mature Christians is by getting our, our, uh, ourselves into God's Word, uh, studying, memorizing, going to church, having accountability, being in fellowship groups. Am I saying all the right things? Yes, and let's, uh, let's, quote, him, let's quote our Lord himself in John's Gospel. When Please. He says, if, if you abide in my word, you are my disciple. And part of what it means to abide in his word is, for example, since we're talking about pastoral ministry, when the pastor gets up on a Sunday morning and proclaims to the people gathered there that Jesus died for you, You are forgiven. To abide in that word and being his disciple is to say one word, and it's probably the most important word that you hear in worship. And what's that? Amen. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. You know, that's, (laughs) that's really important to abide in his word, especially when you are accused by Satan and the world. They both say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You call yourself a Christian, look at your life. It's a total mess. It's a total disaster. And to abide in Christ's word is to trust him that he is your savior, your sins are forgiven, and you have eternal life through faith in him. Mm -hmm. That's huge for me as a pastor. Oh, yeah. Seems like there's a lot of people operating on feelings nowadays, more so than ever. Yeah. And, you know, we're not against feelings. I know. (laughs) I know. But, But the feelings, of course, are a fruit of God's word. And, 
Yeah, there's always the danger when you make feelings the, the front and center of everything. Because what happens is if, if your life as a Christian and your trust in Jesus is always run by feelings, well, then you're always pointed to yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's dangerous. So for certainty of salvation, certainty of forgiveness, etc., you always have to be pointed away from yourself. And that's the external word of God and his promise. And then, of course, feelings will come. There are times, you know, we're singing a hymn in church, and sometimes a verse will hit me like a ton of bricks, mm-hmm. and I'll start crying. And sometimes people misunderstand what's going on. They'll see tears will be coming out of my, my eyes, and they'll say, Pastor, what's wrong? And I'll say, well, you know, the word of God that we just sang in this hymn just hit me like a ton of bricks. And in particular, that Jesus died for a sinner like me. Oh, oh man. <laughs> so beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. really is. Yeah. And then we were talking uh, um, about a quote that I heard from Reverend John Stott recently, and he said, nobody, uh, let's see, see if I can get it. Holiness is not a condition into which we drift. Yeah, holy, I'll I'll piggyback on that. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) It's a gift from the Lord. Mm -hmm. For example, um, in 2 Corinthians 5, you remember that Paul teaches the Corinthians that he who knew no sin was made to be sin, mm-hmm. so that in him we might have the righteousness of God, which Luther, of course, called the Freilich Wechsel in German, or what I like to translate it as the sweet swap, namely that Jesus takes our sin and all of its damnation on the cross, and in exchange, he gives us, to use what we're talking about here, his holiness. And so one of the ways that he gives us his holiness is through the gospel, mm-hmm. the word of the gospel. And so that's what I mean when I say holiness is a gift that the Lord gives us. And then how do we continue to live a holy life? Well, when we live according to God's word. And I've been spending a lot of time in my congregation. We've been studying the Ten Commandments uh, on Sunday mornings during Bible class. And I'll ask the people, how do you know whether you're living a holy life or not? And they've learned when we live according to God's word and not ours. And the Ten Commandments give us that word, of course. This, so the Ten Commandments, they, they describe our relationship before God and others. No commandments one through three. I'm a Lutheran, you know, and so we, we might number the commandments a little differently. But uh, one through three for us is our relationship with God. God himself in the first, his name in the second, and his word in the third. And then our relationship with others, four through ten. And uh, so it describes and it also prescribes our relationship in those two ways. And when you're doing that, and the Christians want to do that, by the way, now you know you're living a holy life. You know, one of the temptations is to become medieval, <laughs> a medieval Christian. And what I mean by that is self-chosen works for holiness. Like in the medieval church, you know, you, you were working on your holiness if you took a pilgrimage to Rome or if you refrained from eating certain kinds of food on a Friday. Mm-hmm. Now, see, the scriptures don't prescribe that at all. Um, so that wasn't holy work. Those were just self-chosen works. And, and it was really wicked because... These self-chosen works of supposed holiness supposedly helped you make you get right with God. And then comes the Reformation. This is, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's do what God has prescribed, and let's do that. And we as Christians want to do that, and that's holy work. You remember, you know, you read Psalm 119. Those of you who have insomnia and you can't sleep at night, <laughs> start, start praying Psalm 119 because it's the longest psalm in the Bible. But notice how often David in that psalm says, teach me, O Lord, teach me. And secondly, 
teach me because I delight in your commands. I love your statutes, etc. And this is the way of holiness, if you will. I hope that's mm-hmm. helpful for oh, people. Oh, it's, ver- it's very helpful, uh, Brent. So let me ask you this question. If we have access to this great gift of holiness, why don't we talk about it more? Well, I think I'm going to make a general statement to okay. make a point. <clears throat> I think, rightly so, that we are, we are concerned to preach justification by faith alone, you know, for Christ's sake. Mm-hmm. And then we forget to preach the second thing that you just mentioned. And, and, and that's kind of a detriment in preaching. It's a de- detriment in pastoral care. I think, I think uh, this is why the Lutheran Reformation took off like gangbusters, because this was not forgotten. Uh, Dr. Luther always talked about living a sanctified life. And he, he, you read his sermons, and he'll talk about, uh, we're not just uh, uh, Good Friday and Easter Christians, but we should also be Pentecost Christians. What he meant by that is, yeah, justification Christians by faith alone, but also at the same time, uh, holy Christians who want to live according to God's word. His Holy Spirited Word, if you will. Is that helpful? It is very helpful. And, of course, I jump to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, that says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Yes. And, and let's not forget that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And what that means is, is Christ's holiness as gift for salvation. Because let's not forget that sin uh, makes us unholy and uh, excludes us from God and his salvific presence. That's why when you read the Old Testament, that's why this is a huge issue, holiness. And, and sin uh, takes away that holiness uh, that God gives. So what does God do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, and he takes all of our sin and all of its impurity and all of its, Im- all of its pollution. And in exchange, God gives us Christ's holiness so we can have communion with God Fellowship with God, if you will. So that text, first of all, is about salvation. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget to receive holiness as a gift from God through Jesus Christ. And then secondarily, of course, it's, all right, now we want to lead a holy life, which is faith toward God and then love for other people according to his word. Mm-hmm. Ever since I sent, it, I sent out that John Stott quote to a couple of friends, I, I got a couple of quotes in return and This one was from A.W. Tozer, which I think you'll like, too. No man should desire to be happy who is not at the same time holy. He should spend his efforts in seeking to know and do the will of God, leaving to Christ the matter of how happy he should be. Right, because when when you trust Jesus for salvation, namely his gift of holiness, so since we're talking about this, yeah. by, he took your sin and all of its condemnation in exchange, he gives you his holiness through the, through the gospel. Then, then now you're free. And you're free to live a life in service towards other people in love. And this is what Paul Romans, you remember? Offer your bodies as a living, living sacrifice. sacrifice. And he actually calls it this, he calls it your spiritual worship, you remember. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. So, Brent, what about the the apathy and indifference that we have towards this beautiful gift that Christ has given us? Well, is that, is, is that the the world, the flesh, and the devil? Getting yeah. At us? Yes. And and the pastoral care is to preach the law so that we die to our um, apathy to God's word. We we then learn to put our old Adam to death so that. Uh, uh, we confess our sins and then trust Jesus 
and then live according to his word. Mm-hmm. And this is just a constant battle until Judgment Day. Yeah. But the main thing is we want people to trust Jesus for salvation. Amen. That's uh, what we want. Yeah, me too. Brent, let me take As a they little... battle against their sin, the world, and the devil. Yeah. Let me take a little break, and then when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. My guest is Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He is the senior pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. We'll take a short break. and be right back. Back to the show. Awfully glad to be having Pastor Brent Kuhlman on the show. He is the senior pastor at uh, Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. And recently, uh, Brent, you talked to, uh, just in a sermon, I would say in the last week, um, about uh, Jesus receives sinners and you qualify. I love that. <laughs> yeah. It comes from Luke's gospel, you remember. And Jesus, in Luke's gospel, of course, you remember that Jesus was always hanging around sinners and not just, you know, your garden variety ones with the worst, you know, tax collectors and sinners, of course, in Luke's gospel, sinners meant prostitutes. I mean, the worst of them all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if if you're a person who says, you know, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good, uh, but I'm I'm not, you know, not as bad as you are, Bill, (laughs) you know, that's how they talk. (laughs) And so they're offended that Jesus would associate himself with sinners. And what they're doing then is that they're divorcing themselves from Jesus as the savior of sinners. Right. That's a very dangerous spiritual game to, to play. The point, the point of the sermon was is to say, look, folks, we're all sinners. You know, Paul in, in Timothy says, you know, I'm the foremost or I'm the chief of sinners. Can you imagine that? The Apostle Paul saying that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I said, you know, we're, we're no different than Paul. We too are like we are, t- we, are, we are chief of sinners and Jesus is chief savior. And so he died for you. He died for sinners. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a very religious, dangerous religious game that gets played. And we need to be aware of it so that we don't, we don't fall into it. And it is this, is when Jesus gets divorced from sin and when Jesus gets divorced from sinners. And that's precisely what these Pharisees were trying to do, divorce themselves and other people from Jesus. And when you do that, well, then you, you're not saved. You don't have a savior. And so Christianity is all about this, is that Jesus Christ, the Holy One, and I'm piggybacking on what we were talking about before the break. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, <laughs> the one who never sinned, actually takes our sin in his body and actually gets damned with it and is counted by God the Father when he's dying on the cross as the sinner and the unholy one. Mm. And don't misunderstand. I'm not saying Jesus sinned. He never right. did. But as Isaiah prophesied, he would bear the iniquity of all. And so on the cross, then the Holy One is treated as the unholy one. And in exchange, we, the unholy ones, are now holy. Why? Because Christ now says, here, take my holiness. It counts for you. And this is what salvation is. You know, since we were talking about Luke, you remember in Luke's gospel, there's this funeral procession going on. Yes. A mother lost her son. Yes. 
And what does Jesus do? He walks right up to the corpse and touches the casket, I think, if I remember correctly. And everybody's shocked because, you know, in the Old Testament, if you touched a dead body or anything associated with something that was dead, you were what considered what? Polluted. Yeah, unclean. Unholy. Yes. And there you, for a while then, you had to be uh, unbuckled from God's people and God's, God's presence until that was accounted for. So what Jesus is doing here, see, this is an object lesson of what we're talking about, is the Holy One, Jesus Christ, God himself takes on flesh to save us. And, one, and how does he do that? By taking all of our sin and all of its effects, including death itself, into himself. And then he raises this young boy to show, look, this is what I come for, to save people. He's an object lesson. I'm giving him his, my holiness. Now he lives. Wow. Yeah, it's just, he's an amazing savior. <laughs> so, yeah, so if, if, you, if you say that I'm not a sinner or, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as Bill or Kuhlman. Yeah. Well, guess what? You're in danger of going to hell. Yeah. So I, I go to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Yeah. And that's really helpful, too, because Christ then uses me as his instrument. I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. For what reason? So that I can take care of people. We mentioned the Romans text earlier, to offer my body as a living sacrifice, which, of course, piggybacks on our Lord in Matthew 20 when he says, you know, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life, his life as a ransom for many. So we live like Jesus, not, not to get saved, but rather to serve. So mm-hmm. now our lives, I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me, means uh, I'm the Lord's servant. I'm not here to be served. So Brent, when Jesus was spending all these times with some of the worst sinners available, people were offended by that. And we, we need to be ready to be uh, put in that same situation where we're going to be persecuted for the company we might keep. Yes, yes, that's, that's absolutely true. And usually the ones who will persecute you will be members of your own congregation <laughs> who, who might be Pharisees, yeah. you see. So how dare you let this sinner in the church? Mm-hmm. My goodness. Well, but, but the point is, is that's, well, that's what the church is all about. The church is all about pardon my language, reuniting Jesus with sinners Mm -hmm. so that he can say, I died for you. (laughs) That's what the church is all about. Yeah. Primarily, you know, and I've seen this. I've seen this as a pastor's when uh, the pastor goes out and does outreach and evangelism and starts bringing people into church who are, have reputations, you know, that aren't so positive. Yeah. People, people raise their eyebrows and say, what's this? What's this? And of course they're running with a false, religion and the false religion is is you've got to get your life together first and your act together first before you can become a member of this congregation yeah no no we bring people to church so they can hear the forgiveness of sins in the gospel so they'll, they'll they'll trust jesus and see when that happens then what happens bill then lives change transformation that's right and and then they want to live as we were talking about before the break then as christians they want to live according to god's word so if a person's been a stripper and a prostitute now they're going to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to associate with these kind of people anymore. I have a new family, fellow believers in Christ, and I'm going to get a different job. <laughs> yeah. So that's, uh, that's a great point. There's obviously some church congregations that don't feel comfortable with people who may not seem to be just like them. And I think this is where we need to help people realize that we're like St. Paul. We are no better. Yeah. One of the professors I had when I was at seminary, 
he, I, I spoke with his wife one time when they had a bunch of students over at a gathering in his home, and the wife to- talked about her husband, the professor, as he knows he's, he's just as big a sinner as anybody else. <laughs> and that's and that means that he needs Jesus just as much as ever, anybody else. Yeah. And then of course when you know that, when you believe that, then you're willing to welcome anybody as a sinner in your church. Now again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying welcome them to be like a judgment free zone like you go to the gym. Mm-hmm. You know that that's that's another danger if I may. Can I speak to that just real quickly? Oh please. One of the huge dangers today in the church, and I'm speaking in general to make my point, is to say, come as you are, we'll welcome you as you are, which means judgment-free zone. Means what? We'll never say that you've sinned and you're not, we won't call you a sinner. And what happens then is the church then ceases to be the church. Right. What I mean by that is what you, what, when you do that, you now have divorced sinners from the Savior of sinner, Jesus. Okay? And that's, that's not what I'm advocating. Right. What I'm saying is, is we welcome sinners into the church so that they will tell the truth about their life like we do. We're sinners. And tell another truth, that Jesus died for our sin, and he says you're forgiven and you have salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we, don't, uh, if we don't have sin, there's no need for a Savior. Right. Yeah. And we're getting less and less comfortable talking about sin. If you bring it up in any kind of conversation— they're not, people have never liked that word sin. They seem to like it less and less. Well, the old Adam hates it. Of course. Yeah, of course. I, I had, uh, we always have visitors at Trinity. And one time, this is a true story, I went to go visit the visitors in their home. And they said to me, we're never coming back. And I said, well, do you mind telling me why? And they said, well, it's because of the way your service started. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, this confession at the beginning, when, when this confession said that we are by nature sinful and unclean and that we deserve God's temporal and eternal punishment, they said, that's such a downer. We're not like that. <laughs> we don't need that. Yeah. So they never did come back. Mm-hmm. So they divorced themselves from Jesus, the Savior of sinners. Sinners, yeah. It's, it's sad. Yeah, people are... Well, uh, we do our work. We continue to do our work. Of course you do. <laughs> Brent, really See, nice... We, it's, it's like Jesus throws out the seed. We just recklessly proclaim his word, you know? <laughs> yeah. Really, uh, really nice talking to you. I so appreciate you uh, doing the show, and I've learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. God's peace. Yep. I guess this has been Pastor Brent Kuhlman. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back with lots more. Faith Radio is a media ministry of University of Northwestern St. Paul, and Faith Radio is growing. As Faith Radio reaches new areas of our nation and the world, we continue to work towards our goal of leading people to Christ and nurturing believers in their faith through Christ-centered media. If you've been encouraged through Faith Radio, let us know. You can find out more about connecting with us on our website at MyFaithRadio.com. That's MyFaithRadio.com. Thanks again to Pastor Brent Kuhlman. That was a great conversation. We've got a great hour coming up in Hour 2 with Dr. Marcus Bachman. He'll be in studio taking your questions. 
Let us know what they are. We're going to talk about having a good relationship. And if you are uh, wanting to know, maybe you've got an issue, uh, he'll he'll tackle it. 877-933-2484. You will be able to send a text or call and talk to him directly. So get your questions ready. I'll give that number again, 877-933-2484. I had one of those days where... When was the last time you had to moisten a frayed shoelace to just thread it through that little hole? I had to do that today. I was thinking, I haven't done that in a while. So, you know, you've got little things that summer's coming to an end because the boots come on next. And I can't even believe I'm even saying that because I know I got still lots of fall ahead. But uh, that's always a sign of summer for me when you're lacing up shoelaces and that shoelace breaks and then it's frayed. And then you got to moisten it and thread it in and you go, yeah, that worked pretty good. I think I just saved myself $1.89. So get a little bit more wear out of that. We're going to take a little break. Let us know what your questions are for Dr. Marcus Bachman, 877-93-FAITH. You can text or call. Be back in a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.